This is about real action with extensive analysis and modeling and super smart people from all six of our companies working together to find solutions along the way to 2050 to get us to net zero. Welcome to Canusa Street, a podcast at the intersection of the issues and policies between Canada and the United States. Here are your hosts, Scotty Greenwood and Chris Sands. Welcome back to Canusa Street, everybody. I am Scotty Greenwood with Canadian American Business Council, and I'm joined with my collaborator and good friend, the Honorable Chris Sands with the Woodrow Wilson Center. Hello, Chris. Hi, Scotty. Not so honorable, but glad to be here. Oh, I think you're pretty honorable and pretty smart, too. So we have a great conversation coming up today for this podcast on Canusa Street. And we're going to be talking to someone that, Chris, you and I have gotten to know uh, recently because of her recent trip to Washington, uh, D.C., that we want to hear about. And we're going to see her again uh, in a little while in Calgary. So, um, So I will turn it over to you to introduce Rona properly. But I have to say, we're going to talk today about... Uh, a subject that's important to the world, which is where we get our energy and how we get it and can we get it in an environmentally sustainable way and who are the leaders in that from a Canada-US perspective and a global perspective. So I think it's a pretty important conversation. And with that, Chris, let me turn it over to you to introduce her properly. Well, well, thanks, Scotty, and I'm really excited. Rona Delfrari is Chief Sustainability Officer and Senior Vice President for Stakeholder Engagement at Synovus. She works to ensure environmental, social, and governance, ESG considerations, are embedded in the company's strategy and business plans. Rona is also responsible for leading the company's communications efforts, hence she's talking to us, and building strong relationships with stakeholders. And that includes working with indigenous community members, government officials, and community partners. She's been with Synovus and its predecessor company since 2008, with roles in media relations, external communications, strategy, stakeholder engagement, and more. Before joining Synovus, Rona spent 15 years as a journalist, which is, I think, where I first encountered her, working in newsrooms across the country, including the CBC, Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, and Global Television. So, Rona, welcome to Canusa Street. Thank you so much for having me. I love anything to do with Canadian US policy discussion. And Yay. right now, right now, energy and environment, that's pretty much what policy is all about these days, isn't it? It's true. That's exactly right. And you know, Chris mentioned in the t- at the top your your background as a journalist before you came over to the private sector. And I think that's where we, we met back then too. And and I think it also what this means, Chris, is we'll be on our toes because Rona is a pro. She knows something about communicating, but but also um, uh, I'm excited about the conversation we're going to have. So so let's let me, maybe I'll start um, a little bit, and then and then we'll just um, have a dialogue for as long as as long as we've got you, Rona. So I mentioned that you and Chris and I all saw each other in Washington recently, and it was terrific. You're part of something called the Pathways Alliance to Net Zero, and Chris and I both have had the opportunity to collaborate with the Pathways Alliance uh, in different ways. And I wonder, just because it might not be a household name for all the Canusa Street listeners, could you talk to us about what is it and what in the world were you doing in Washington, D.C. in the middle of summer when everybody's trying to get out of here? Well, we're always happy to come to Washington. And actually, the, the weather the weather gods were, were kind to us and our business suits wasn't too bad. <laughs> Pathways Alliance 
is personally the most exciting thing that I've had the chance to work on in my career. And there's a few reasons for that, but mainly because this is going to have an amazing impact on all of Canada and as well trickle into the US. So here's here's why, I'm gonna explain why. What Pathways is, is it is a collaborative effort by six of Canada's largest oil sands producers. So that's Synovus, Suncor, Canadian Natural, Meg, Imperial, and ConocoPhillips Canada. Those companies are 95% of the oil sands production. And to give you some, to give your listeners some kind of context for that, Canada currently produces about 5 million barrels per day of oil. That's a lot of oil. Uh, most of that, so three and a half to four million barrels per day of that oil comes from the oil sands. So this is this is a significant effort when you talk about these six companies getting together. And why we got together is one main vision, and that is to get to net zero emissions from our production by 2050. We figured that we were all working on GHG emissions reduction initiatives on our own. And as a sector, we've reduced our emissions per barrel by about one third over the past years, but we needed to move faster. And we knew that that would take collaboration. And so about, you know, it's actually coming up to about two years ago, we, a few of our companies started talking, our CEO started talking behind the scenes about what can we do? We need to move faster. We're hearing from all of our stakeholders, from our investors, from governments, from the public, that they want us to be leaders when it comes to helping not just Canada achieve its GHG emissions reduction targets and commitments, but, but to doing it for our employees and for our local stakeholders and our communities. This is, this is important for everybody. So how do we do this in a more rapid manner than we currently are? And the consensus was, we need to forget about doing this as individual companies. We need to do this as one collaborative effort. And, and thus the birth of Pathways Alliance. We've now, we, you know, we talked about it publicly about a year ago. We wanted to make sure this was not viewed as a greenwashing exercise. It is absolutely not a PR exercise. This is about real action with extensive analysis and modeling and super smart people from all six of our companies working together to find solutions along the way to 2050 to get us to net zero. And, you know, I'll talk a little bit more about that as we go along, but basically the oil sands in Canada, uh, the production from the oil sands is about 10% of Canada's total emissions. So that's a significant amount. And if we are that much of a part of the broader problem, we have to be part of the solution or Canada won't be able to achieve its commitments. We recognize that. And we recognize that by working together, sharing all of the technology that we're working on to reduce emissions, working collaboratively in joint ventures to get there, that is the best way to do this. And it's been received so well by all of our stakeholders. Well, that's thanks for that. And, and let's talk about your reception in Washington in particular. I happen to know, because I, I helped work on it, that you you had, you know, at least three dozen 
meetings with Democrats, Republicans, House, Senate, uh, the administration. Uh, and on top of all that, you met with think tanks and, you know, you met with Chris's organization, with my organization, Canadian American Business Council. Can you characterize the kind of reception you got in Washington? Are people interested? Are they listening? Uh, you know, this this does tend to be the the capital of attention deficit disorder. So how how did it go um, in, in all of these different meetings you had as you were all over Capitol Hill? We were extremely well-received in Washington, uh, especially the aspect of Pathways Alliance that is the collaborative effort. So I talked about these six companies working together, but we can't succeed in this unless we also work with other stakeholders, governments at all levels being a key part of that. And that part of it was what was really piquing people's interest. So it doesn't matter what part of the political spectrum you are on when it comes to the climate change issue. This is a business imperative these days. So this isn't about politics. This is about having a successful business over the long term addressing climate change. And I think, again, all politicians, all bureaucrats are are recognizing that and, and they're giving our companies a lot of credit for working together because anybody that has worked in a corporation, we're very competitive with each other, no surprise. You know, we're competing for shareholders, investment dollars, uh, we're competing for employees, we're competing for a lot. And so the recognition that we were getting that we were willing these six large companies, multi-billion dollar companies to put aside our competitive interests and work completely as one team on this was quite impressive to people. And it has been, you know, not just with the audience in DC, but when we meet with investors in the US and around the world, that that part of it is what, what makes people think you guys are actually going to succeed on this. Because our CEOs meet every Friday morning at 7 a.m. on this, and they've been doing it for well over a year and a half. Including during Stampede, Rona, did they meet this morning? Because we're it's a Friday and it's Stampede. This yeah. year, this was the first, First morning, it's Calgary Stampede right now. This was the first morning that we didn't meet, but that doesn't, but they're still having discussions about it today, even though we didn't have a formal 7 a.m. meeting. So you caught me there. That's funny. No, no, no. I didn't, I didn't know whether yeah, they no, did or didn't. True. But it, it is, this is the first day this, this year that we didn't meet on a Friday morning. Well, and just, just as a sidebar, the Stampede, I mean, Chris and I are, you know, we're wonks, so we're going to Calgary after the stampede is over so we can dig into policy. But I have to say, looking at the pictures and the posts, it looks like it's lovely and wonderful for people to get back together. Are are people having fun? They are breaking records at Stampede this year. It's incredible. And when you talk about Canada-U.S. relations, you look at the competitors in the Stampede rodeo alone. The rodeo is only one part of what Stampede is. There are an equal amount of Americans competing as there are Canadians. So I have to say, I just actually met one of a one of the American saddle bronc riders yesterday at an event. So this this is the epitome of what Canada U.S. relations is: the stampede. Amazing, amazing. <laughs> so so go you know going back though to the reception that we received, people are very yeah. supportive. What they want to know is, okay, what does this mean? to the US. Does this mean then that there will be more acceptance to see Canada as the best, the most responsible provider of oil to the US? Canada already is the largest of the US imports of oil. Canada is the largest provider. 62% of oil imports into the US come from Canada. The vast majority of those 
are from the oil sands. And so we are already intertwined with our energy systems. In you, you, you cannot have a Canada energy system or a US energy system. There it is a North American energy system. Because you know, you look at all of those refineries, especially in the Gulf Coast, even in California and other places, the way the, the type of feedstock, the type of oil that those refineries need is the kind of oil that's heavy oil, the kind that we produce up in Canada. And so there was a lot of understanding about the need, the importance of Canadian energy being provided to the U.S. to make sure that consumers are getting the fairest prices when it comes to filling up at the pumps. Um, and just the security of that, especially when you have the president heading over to other countries and asking those other countries to beef up their oil production. You know, as we sit here in Canada, we kind of say, what the heck? Hello, we're right here. We have the world's third largest oil reserves. We are a friendly neighbor. We are so close. We would love to continue to sell you more of our oil. And so that's really where the discussions were going in Washington and a lot of the times. Okay, great. Yes, for all reasons, this makes complete sense that it, it, as long as the U.S. is going to continue to need oil, and nobody is telling me that's any time in the short term that that's going to end, um, there was a lot of acceptance that it should be coming from Canada. If the biggest challenge and the biggest resistance from about taking Canadian oil was GHG emissions intensity of the oil, which I can argue that that, that you know we we have a strong story to tell there that maybe hasn't really been fully understood. Regardless, this Pathways Alliance is going to get that oil to net zero emissions, and so we should be the the provider of choice. And that's you know that's one of the outcomes, one of the reasons that we really pursued this Pathways Alliance is that. We have decades and decades and decades of oil resource in Canada. Um, we are leading in all areas of environment, social and governance. The, I, I get, you know, I, I travel to Europe, I travel, you know, across the US and everybody agrees with that. We're so strong when it comes to our regulatory areas with our transparency and our disclosure about emissions in all areas of environment. We have great community relationships, including with our indigenous communities. Uh, so if our biggest challenge was emissions, we're tackling that now. So there is no reason why everybody in this world would not want Canadian oil and most specifically our closest neighbor who needs that oil. Wow, Rana, that's uh, that's a great opening. So uh, well, let me see if I can back up just a little bit. Um, so this is something that Canada is doing and we've seen some other countries do it in a commodity market. One barrel of oil looks like another barrel of oil, unless you can start to distinguish and create a brand that says, hey, this is better than the average and people then maybe pay a premium price or choose you over other sources. And I always think of Prince Edward Island mussels as a area where with a little bit of marketing, they've become the top drawer. Everybody wants those mussels. And also I think potatoes, Canadian, also, Canadian diamonds. diamonds. Canadian That's diamonds. another exactly. one. Exactly. So PEI potatoes and Canadian diamonds. I don't need anything else, actually. <laughs> Well, yes, potatoes are a girl's best friend. No, wait, that's diamonds. Um, um, but so let me understand this. If I understand this, just correct me if I'm wrong. So here, 
as Norway has had a sort of Northern Lights program, the Netherlands have had this program called Porthos, I think, Canada's Pathways is trying to be the best barrel of oil out there from a GHG perspective by trying to reduce the impact. Now, it's still oil, absolutely, but as we know from the current inflation and high gas prices, we still need oil, but you want to be the best barrel of oil from a GHG perspective. How do you achieve that? I mean, how do you how do you measure that? Where does the GHG emissions come out of the process? I mean, for those of us who don't, you know, think every day about how you produce a barrel of oil, where do you take the GHG out and and how are you achieving this in the Pathways project? Yeah, so let me take a step back and and explain exactly that because I do not expect your listeners to know how a barrel of oil gets out of the ground. Uh, there are a lot of industries that I use every day that I don't understand every aspect of it. So in the oil sands in particular, there are two ways to produce oil. One of them, the more traditional one from years, many decades past, was to mine it. So that is this oil sands resource that is very close to the surface. So those operations are like typical mining operations that you see around the world for any type of mining. But most of that really thick oil, again, that world's third largest reserves of oil, most of that really thick oil is deep underground. So, you know, a thousand feet underground or more. And it took a lot of time for the smart engineers that we have working on this to figure out how do you get that thick oil from that deep underground? We knew it was there, um, but it, it didn't just pump out of the ground like you see in a lot of the traditional fields across Texas and other areas because it was too thick. And so we figured out a way that if you inject steam underground. And again, most of this of the water that we use to create the steam is saline, it's salty water. And if you 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 boil it, you're basically boiling it in giant steam generators, but boilers, uh, you inject that steam under the ground, it melts the really thick oil, and it allows you to pump it up to the surface. So the rest of the of the operation is then very similar to more conventional, it's being pumped out, you separate that the steam or the water that comes up with it and recycle it over and over and over again. That way of producing the oil, that really thick oil from underground, is really the future of the oil sands because we're going to get to the point and we're, we're getting there that there's not really going to be more mines produced because that easy to get stuff that was close to the surface, that's already uh, been addressed with, with current mines. So most of it has to be produced the way that I just described. Uh, and for Synovus, my company, that's the only, we don't have any mines, that's how we produce our oil. The key there is that when you create that steam, when you boil that water, we use the most effective way to do that is by using burning natural gas to boil the water. So similar to those of you who have uh, a gas stove, you put your kettle on there, you turn on the gas, you get the flame and you boil your water just at a much larger scale. The emissions that we create are actually from the burning of that natural gas to create steam. That's where the majority of the emissions are coming from in the oil sands. Mm -hmm. And so when we get the finger pointed to us and saying, you're the dirtiest oil in the world, and we've heard that many times, the reason is because we are creating emissions from burning natural gas to create that water to produce the oil eventually for the steam to burn to boil that water. And so this is what we're addressing. So the mines um, have their own emissions in a different way. The, these are called in situ in place, the oil is in place. These in situ projects are primarily going to have to address the emissions that are created from, from that boiling of the water. 
And we called it Pathways for a Reason. It has to have multiple different solutions. There's no one size fits all solution. And so one of the ones, and you mentioned those other projects around the world, Chris, um, carbon capture and storage is something that is proven technology right now. It can be implemented now. Many of our companies, including Synovus, have used it and are currently using it at other operations. It's never been implemented on the scale that we're talking about in the oil sand. So that's what's new. So, so the foundational project that we're looking at as this Pathways Alliance is a carbon capture and storage project that would have um, a pipeline that runs through the heart of the oil sands. It, it would be able to link up about 20 oil sands projects as well as other sectors, other industries that are up there. And it would take the CO2 from each of these operations. You would capture it at each of those boilers or those steam generators in the in-situ and other aspects of the mining. And you would take the CO2, put it in the ground in reservoirs that we are very familiar with because we've been producing oil and natural gas out of these reservoirs already. We know the CO2 will stay there and it stays there. And that's it. So, so sorry, let me just, if I could, just while you're, while you're there, um, this sounds interesting. It sounds huge. Um, it also sounds expensive. So who is, how much does it cost? Do we know how much it costs? Who's paying for it? How do you think about the, the money and how do you, how do investors think about that? Yeah, Scotty, the reason that we haven't already implemented this decades ago is because of the cost, not because of the technology, because of the cost. And so when we look at these projects, these are multi-billion dollar projects. Now, the ability to continue to produce that oil over the years by having, by capturing all of its emissions and, and having, you know, earned the right to continue to produce it and sell it as very responsibly produced oil is going to also generate many, many billions and trillions of dollars that will contribute not just to our companies, but to the Canadian economy. You know, for example, in Alberta, my company, our companies do not own the oil. People of Alberta, which is our province or our state, own the oil. So it's not a it's not a federal resource. It's a provincial resource. It's not private. It's public. These are big differences than, from other places in the world. Okay. Yeah, they definitely are. And the and, it, and even across Canada, there are some differences, but primarily this resource is the resource of the people in Canada. There are certain areas where, yes, an individual may own it, but that's quite rare here, the way that our system was set up, uh, quite different than in the U.S. as well here. And so as we're producing the oil, the, the, the people are actually benefiting more and more from it, the more oil that's produced. Of Alberta now, so are our companies, of course, and we're giving back taxpayers. We're employing to taxpayers. We're employing people, but what has prevented us over the years of implementing a solution such as carbon capture and storage on a massive scale is that it does cost these billions, and we still need to remain competitive globally. So the oil and gas sector, as you well know, is a global sector. And an investor doesn't need to invest in the Canadian oil and gas sector if they want to invest in energy. They can go anywhere in the world and put those investment dollars. And so while our investors absolutely want us to decarbonize, very important to them, by the way, they also want to make some money and they want some returns on their investment. And so it's a balancing act about how much can our companies contribute of right now oil prices are doing fairly well. 
And so we do have some profits right now. A year and a half ago, we did not have profits. It's a very cyclical industry. But how much of the profits when we're making them, how much of our revenue can we put of our own money into decarbonization efforts before our investors start to say, wait a second, we want you to do that, but you have to you have to balance it with also making sure that shareholders are receiving their due returns. And so that's where we need that government partnership that I talked about. And in Canada, the government realizes that. And so the governments, I will say, because it's at the provincial level and at the Fed, at, at, at the national level. And so we're working so closely with them because this is not just our own targets. I mean, again, we're contributing to Canada's commitments to, to decarbonize. And what we've seen, for example, is that the Canadian federal government, and we're still waiting for all the details about it, but they've come out with an investment tax credit for CCS projects. And, you know, for the capture side of it, that's up to 50% of the capital that the government would, would refund in a tax credit format. There's a 45Q in the U.S. that's similar, different, but similar to incent. Again, you have to, you have to give incentives for companies to be able to pursue these projects that the companies want to pursue, but they have to be prudent with their, with their, um, with their budget. Yeah. And Chris, we'll let you get a word in edgewise, but just on that point, Rona, I mean, it's as policy, uh, people, it, a simple way of thinking about it is if you're a government, if you're a policymaker and you and you want somebody to do more of something, you give it a tax credit. So policymakers want industry to do more carbon reduction. And so how do you get industry to invest in that? Well, you do tax credits. And if you want somebody to do less of something like uh, smoking, nicotine, um, you tax it, right? So, uh, so that's... The, the kind of carrot and stick approach. We have both in Canada because we have a very significant carbon tax in Canada on its way to $170 a ton. You know, Alberta, our jurisdiction was actually the first in Canada and possibly North America. I can't remember. I, I can't remember exactly to have a carbon right. tax yeah. on industrial emitters in particular. So this is something our, our companies actually have always supported the carbon tax. We don't have a problem with that because it, it provides the right incentive to be able to get better at this and and leading companies you know such as Sonovus I'll give myself a plug you know we have the lowest emissions in in the oil sands among the lowest emissions uh intensity in the oil sands but we we are we are we are given an incentive because we then thus pay less of a carbon tax and so you know the carbon tax then results in carbon credits that can be funneled back to give you know for investment in technology so all of this is one big system that has to work together and it's reliant on policy uh, Rana, that I'm going to take a step back from the policy, though, and put myself in the position of the consumer, which, you know, I, a lot of consumers hear about whether it's organic food or artisanally created coffee or whatever they're trying to sell us. It's it's always said to be that much finer, worth a little bit of a premium price. So I have my question for you is how do we certify or or verify that you've got this low ghg profile that you're making progress and is there data out there that you know students of mine or people out there can use to really find out are they meeting their targets or is or, or, or is there really action on the ground is there something we can look at uh, so we know we're not being bamboozled it's interesting because natural gas has already started down this this road of verifying and getting a premium for their natural gas, natural gas that's produced with, with low carbon emissions. 
And I do believe, and we've thought about this for a long time, I do believe that it, it is not into the too distant future that we will be able to receive a premium. I'm hoping, I don't want to, you know, this is my, this is my goal, that we would be able to receive a premium for this, this type of oil. Because if people are serious about truly wanting to address climate change, then they, then they have to start making changes themselves. And if that change means I am going to specifically select oil that that is lower carbon than others, then that's one change. And so you ask how you verify it. Absolutely. We can't do this without really strong monitoring, measurement and reporting. And in Canada, we have a long history of that. I mean, our emissions at our oil sands facilities are not estimated. So a lot of oil sands emissions are not not oil sands. A lot of oil emissions around the world are estimates. There, there's a lot of assumptions that go into that. Um, methane, for example, is a much more potent GHG than CO2 even. And methane is hard to measure because it leaks all over the place at you know conventional oil um, projects. And so sometimes they just don't bother measuring it, which is which is not right. At our oil sands facilities, we don't have a methane problem. Methane, there basically is only trace amounts of methane, but the CO2, we measure it and have to report it to the regulator and that is verified. And then we disclose it in our own company ESG disclosure as well. But yes, in Canada, you can trust the data because it is truly measured from the oil sands and not there are not assumptions about it. And so, and that data is, is made public. The challenge is in when you're going to compare it, because the there are many models out there that are used to compare GHG emissions of oil around the world. But the, the challenge again is that some of the data, and there's there are companies that have you know done assessments of which data can be believed the most. No shock, the Canadian data comes out on top as truly believable and trustworthy and that that is what what is being said is what is true but around the world in many countries with different regimes than than Canada's you you can't really the data is hard to get verified and and it it, it is there's a lot of assumption that goes into it so when you take when you look at these and Canada's placed, who knows? It depends on which model you look at we we're often placed at the lowest end like we have the highest emissions intensity but it's being compared to countries that are not verifying their data at source, not monitoring and measuring their data at source. Well, I have to say, I mean, I, I often am in some place and somebody's trying to sell me a premium product and they're sort of super cool hipsters. I'm not saying you're not a super cool hipster, but you are much more credible than the average super cool hipster that I encounter out there. Uh, so I, I really appreciate the transparency because I think that makes it a lot easier for people to take a chance uh, on seeing the value of what you're what you're doing. Over to you, Scotty. Can I actually add something there? You know, yeah, yeah. There's, there's definitely no way that the oil and gas sector in Canada would ever be accused of being super cool hipsters. In fact, <laughs> no, part of the problem, <laughs> part of the problem to why we are in the situation that we are, and that and that our our name has been, the reputation has been tarnished over the years, because the sector in Canada allowed others to tell its story for them when it came to climate action. Because this is a group of people, they're engineers primarily, or, you know, they're, they're geologists, they're finance people, and there's nothing wrong with those people. Some are my best friends, but they just, you know, they're not great at telling the story. And they're like, we're doing the right thing here. We're reducing our emissions. We're doing what's right by the environment. We shouldn't have to go and climb mountains and yell it from the top of that mountain that we're great. 
And so we went wrong over the years. We allowed our story to be told by others. And now we're having to explain it coming from a point where our reputation has been harmed. Yeah, you know, I I think um, over the years, the industry writ large in Canada, the United States, the oil and gas and energy industry, just thought it was self-evident. People were driving their cars to work. They were turning on their lights, you know, and they that I th- I think just, you know, for the last few decades, it's like, well, obviously you use our product, you need it. So we don't have to explain ourselves to you because you need it. And so I, I agree with you, Rona, there's an opportunity to, um, to illuminate, you know, what, what's really going on. But so on that point, let me, where we are right now, it seems to me there's a tension in, in the United States and around the world between two schools of thought that have been brought to the fr- forefront by this Russian aggression in Ukraine, this horrible war in Europe. So so one school of thought, so Russia, as we know, uh, is an energy producer and there's all this, you, you know, uh, all this concern about if you cut off Russian energy, what does it do to prices and all of that sort of stuff? Russia kind of weaponized their energy, you know, lots of related stories. So, so, so you've got the reaction to that in the immediate aftermath was okay. Nobody wants to get their oil from Russia because they're bad guys. Canada is good guys. So you had there's a t- but. However, so that's one school of thought. We need more. We need more Canadian oil. Was was it in response to Russian aggression? Uh, or we need more Canadian minerals processing in response to China's dominance and its geopolitics, et cetera. But that's in direct tension with an entire movement that says, no, actually, this proves why you got to leave it in the ground. This proves why we don't want oil and gas at all, because we don't want bad guys weaponizing it. It does hurt the environment in China when you produce minerals, as an example, or resources in Canada. So how do you navigate that tension? Because I'm, I'm sure you heard it in Washington in, in various forms, uh, and I'm sure it comes up. No, it, it, it comes up not just from what we're hearing from others, but it comes up within our own discussions as well within our companies and within Pathways Alliance. And and so, you know, we have to take a pra- – we're business people. You take a practical approach and you base it on data. And all of the data that I have seen, and I and I talk to a lot of you know environmental groups and uh, ESG investors, and I say to them, "Have you seen any scenario where we don't have still a significant amount of oil demand in 2050?" No, but there are there are no scenarios that still don't show. I think that you know the lowest scenarios for oil demand in 2050 are about you know 23 million barrels per day. We're at about 100 right now of of global oil demand. And I said, okay, so even if we all agree that there's, so we all agree there's going to be oil demand still in decades for decades to come, and we agree that there will be less oil demand probably in decades to come than today as other sources of energy start to uh, gain more traction. The challenge is that with the argument of just leave it in the ground is that it you need to do this in a very thoughtful way because you see otherwise you see the challenges that you're seeing right now in Europe. And we could see that, you know, we, we're all fooled here in North America because we've had energy security for so long because we're blessed. Our countries are blessed with an abundance of oil and natural gas. 
and hydro and many other energy sources. The wind blows, the sun shines. We're great here. And so we take that for granted as Americans and Canadians, and we shouldn't. Because we, this is this is something that could also, you know, if you push policy in the wrong direction, this could have an impact here. People are complaining about oil prices. People are complaining about how much it is costing them to heat their homes or cool their homes right now, I guess. And that can happen really fast if we're not thoughtful about it. And and so I I I don't want to have any more discussions about well we shouldn't ju- we just shouldn't produce it end of story because the people that do that that's a cowardly approach enough of that approach all of us in the industry 100% agree we need to address climate change we're not climate change deniers we're saying we have to address it so then people that are saying leave it in the ground also have to take a step forward and what's the next step then and then what because wind is not a direct substitute or solar for oil Oil is yeah. a very versatile energy product, and that is why it is the predominant energy source around the world. I mean, it's not just made for fueling up your car, but it's, you know, every plastic, look around your room right now for all of your listeners, pretty much everything is made from oil in some way or the other. And those products around you are actually increasing as as uh, some countries are are reaching the level of great standard of living we have in our countries. And as other countries achieve that, there's going to be more demand for these products. So actually greater demand for for oil and natural gas. I was just going to hot pursuit on that because one of the things that has worried me and I think makes your project, the Pathways Alliance, so laudable is that coming out of COVID, we've seen so many countries in the developing world really have take a hit. They are set back a decade or more in their development. And I I'm confident that countries like the US and Canada will be among the first to figure out how to you know, move beyond fossil fuels or how to use fossil fuels so efficiently that, that we really have nice equilibrium and I'm all interested in electric vehicles and all of that. But I know a lot of countries are gonna be looking to oil for a long time. And the best barrel of oil from a GHG perspective is the one I want them to have so that the planet benefits. I mean, we can't make this jump and we're talking about net zero by 2050, we're not gonna get there. Maybe US and Canada might, but they're gonna be a lot of countries gonna be struggling to keep up. And I think what you're doing will help them while they continue to use oil, uh, you know, over time, this technology, CCUS and so forth. Now, do you think of this as a world saving project or are you really just focused on us in the US? I know we're we're very captivating consumers. No, we're, you know what? We actually do see the Pathways Alliance as a model that can be replicated elsewhere. Now, you know, we're still at the early stages. This is a journey that's taking us through to 2050 and we're at the very early stages, but we have feasibility studies underway. We've got, you know, we we have consultation underway for the CCS project, but there are other pathways too. I mean, we're looking at small modular reactors. We're looking at hydrogen. We're looking at what else could we inject into the ground other than steam so that we can get that oil out of there. So, uh, and those are just some of the examples of the technology. Maybe, maybe some maple syrup. You could, you maybe could. some, you never know. Well, that's a bit sticky. I'm not sure that that would work quite as well, but, but who knows, you know, we, we've done, we've done some um, pilots with injecting propane in to help that. And we, that's proven or butane that gets the oil out of the ground with fewer emissions. So there's lots of things that we're working on, but we, we do see this as uh, our collaborative effort as unique in the world. 
Um, and we, we had other people asking us about it. We've, we've done very little proactive engagement about this so far. And the amount of people from around the world that have already heard about it is almost shocking to us. Uh, and I think, you know, governments are excited about it. Our federal government's been talking about it. Our provincial government's been talking about it. And so, you know, the more they, they the credit that we're getting, again, I go back to, it is about the collaborative way that we're approaching this. And you are seeing other initiatives. I mean, one was one was announced for the Gulf Coast as well, a similar, it was a CCS hub with some, some of our peers down in the U.S., but a bit differently because this, this is a vision to get an, and to hold each other accountable to get to net zero by 2050. And that's a big, that's a big deal. And this is not going to be easy at all. If it was easy, it would be done already. You know, I, I like to see a little competition between the big players to see who can be, uh, who, who can do more, who can innovate faster. So we're, we're very, you're very generous with your time. We, we're coming to a close here, but, but I do have kind of one last question that's the other side of the coin from the leave it in the ground crowd. Um, and it is the, and you you alluded to it, Rona, the president of the United States is traveling today. As we record this, he's in the Middle East. He's in Saudi, Qatar, Israel, um, but in Middle East. And um, Chris and I think he'll probably come to Canada sometime before uh, the end of the year. Uh, so, so, so President Biden's making the rounds. Inevitably, your companies are going to get asked um, and are probably getting asked. The flip side of the leave it in the ground is, which is, can you turn the tap on? Prices, gas prices at the pump are high. That hurts consumers. Inflation is hurting people. Um, Could you do more? How quickly could you do more? What would it take? So I know it's more complicated than that, but when you get asked that, how um, how do you talk about it? How do you think about it? If the Keystone XL pipeline had been built uh, and had been going ahead, that would have been sending 800,000 barrels per day more of Canadian oil to the U.S. And so the challenge now is that we need a way to get our oil there. There is a pipeline called the Trans Mountain Expansion Pipeline that will be coming on stream soon. And that will send, you know, several hundred thousand more barrels per day, primarily into the California market. We could also be sending it overseas to Asia, though. You know, we will send our oil to wherever we get the best price for the product. Um, And so there are opportunities, but these projects aren't things that we can just turn on overnight, start shipping it down there to a customer and then turn it off. These are investments that are multi-decade investments to bring on to bring on oil projects. So there is in the short term, and, and Canada has actually pre- increased its oil production by about 10% since pre-COVID times. So we are producing more oil out of this country. Much, you know, that, that's a fairly significant increase. Um, and we could do a bit more. You know, there's maybe a couple hundred thousand or so extra barrels that are coming on, you know, from all of our companies. But you know, this is this has this goes to the fact that we need a long-term energy and environmental, I'll always put those two together, strategy for Canada and US. And and then because th- this is not something that is going to be going away. This issue is going to keep popping up over and over again unless we unless our two countries get together and nail this strategy. Yeah, well, well said. I mean, we are better together. Um, and I just think that's a perfect uh, that that's a perfect way to th- to think about Canada, the United States, um, it, how integrated and mutually dependent we are. Um, Chris, do you have do you have a last 
question and then we'll give Rona the opportunity for a last word of wisdom and, and we'll wrap up. Sure. No, uh, you know, uh, Rona, this is uh, this has been a fascinating discussion. I guess if you were going to, um, I don't know, communicate with people here in the U.S., I guess you are because you're on our wonderful podcast listened to by thousands, millions, possibly. Um, what's what's the takeaway message for what Calgary, what Alberta, what the what this oil patch is trying to do? Because you know, we, we're familiar, we know you have oil, all of that, but but what's the message for Americans? Uh, is it, we're, we're, well, you tell me, I mean, what can we, what can we convey to the average consumer, to the American taxpayer, to the environmentally concerned American voter? What's your message? Our message is that there is no need to look elsewhere in the world for oil supply. Canada has it. We have enough to share with others across south of the border for decades to come. We have moved way beyond the point of talk when it comes to addressing climate challenges in our sector. We are at the stage of action and you are going to see measured progress as we progress on our pathway to uh, net zero by 2050. Amazing. That's fantastic. Thank you. And this may be some of the best news I've had all day. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd say that's a mic drop. We're going to get to net zero uh, in our lifetime, led by the energy industry in Canada. So um, so thank you. for Thank you so much for joining us. It's really great to see you. And hey, we look forward to seeing you in Calgary in just a couple of weeks. Sounds great. I look forward to it as well. All right. Back to the stampede, my friend. You can you can put your hat back on and, and uh, a few more days, right? A couple more days of stampede and then and then it's back to business. And then it's rest for a little bit. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. You Thanks deserve so it. much. <laughs> Well, Chris, I, I love learning things on Canusa Street. And as much as you and I both worked with Pathways, I, I learned a few things from Rona today. But here's here's what I am excited about. Um, I haven't been to the oil sands yet myself. I know you have, but I haven't actually physically been there. And one of my philosophies in life is, is how important it is to show up, uh, to really see and experience things. So here's my proposal, my friend. I, I'm going to go to the oil sands uh, in a couple of weeks. And check it out. And after that, why don't we get back together on Canusa Street and talk about what we learned? I think that would be a great idea. And Scotty, you are in for a treat. I've taken groups of students up to the oil sands and, you know, they they start out interested in international relations, interested in energy, but there's just no substitute for seeing it and seeing how hard people work to try to make sure that it is a clean and uh, environmentally friendly resource to the extent they can. And you see the scale, you see the size of the trucks, you see all of what's been going. It's it's truly an amazing experience. Yeah, and you know, it it seems it seems almost obvious, but I'm gonna say it anyway. We know that that there is a transition away from fossil fuels. That is important for the planet. The question is during that transition, however long it takes us to convert to other forms of energy. Where do you want to get your energy? Do you want to get it from your friend and in the most environmentally responsible way on the planet? Or do you want to get it from somebody who means to do you harm? And it seems obvious, but I think it bears repeating. Well, and, and people who mean to do us harm are one challenge, of course. But a lot of countries, <laughs> I think their oil industries aren't trying as hard as Canada. And, you know, you have to give them credit. The Canadians 
have a huge engineering challenge to make CCUS work, to clean, reduce the GHG profile of their oil. That is absolutely on the scale of major, you know, scientific engineering innovation challenges. And they're putting the money into it to try to achieve that. And I just don't think a lot of countries will. Um, I don't want to pick on any particular country, but we can certainly say Russia won't. And there'll be other countries that are trying to sell that you know, first, any oil they can sell just for the cash. And here we have a real ally that's that's investing in trying to create a great product for us. And I think we need to we need to show our appreciation by at least giving them the time of day, learning more from them and, and hearing their story. Giving them the time of day and then building some infrastructure to get the product to market. So those are the two, those exactly. are the two ways we show, our, we show our appreciation. Well, listen, Chris, it's always great to see you, my friend. And I look forward to seeing you in Calgary, where we're going to take Canusa Street up north. Yep, Canusa Street on the road. I think, is it a road? It's a street? No, I don't know. Anyway, we'll make it work. This podcast is brought to you by the Canadian American Business Council and the Wilson Center. If you like this episode, help others find our show and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify.